This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, the folks at Bella Catering are one of the best catering companies in the whole of Australia and especially in Sydney. But due to the coronavirus restrictions, those lovely folks led by Glenn and Maria are unfortunately struggling but we can help them and I want to help them with this show. So if you guys can and you like delicious things and you're in Australia and you're in Sydney and you're within about a 20K to 30K radius, which is pretty much the entire um, Sydney basin, if you want delicious food at a great price and you want it delivered to your house, bellacatering.com.au is where you need to go. Absolutely delicious stuff, family stuff, like, you know, huge, huge get-togethers that we're doing virtually and things like that. You want leftovers, you want that sort of thing, bam, bellacatering.com.au. Glenn is absolutely a deeply questionable individual. However, that should not be held against him. He has a lovely wife, he has a lovely family, and they've got great staff, and they are awesome. Now, onto the show. The Watergate story had stalled, maybe even died. The reporters could not understand why. Bernstein's administration contact, the former official, was also unable to get any useful information and joked, or so Bernstein thought, that the White House had gone underground. Bernstein, protesting, was shipped back to Virginia politics. Woodward decided to take a vacation. On July 22, the day Woodward left for Lake Michigan, the Long Island afternoon paper Newsday reported that a former White House aide named G. Gordon Liddy, who had been working as a lawyer for the campaign committee, had been fired by Mitchell in June for refusing to answer FBI questions about Watergate. Liddy, 42, had come from the White House as the CRP's general counsel on December 11, 1971, and had later been appointed finance counsel, handling legal advice on campaign finances and contributions. Like McCord, he was an ex-FBI agent. But Devin Shumway, the committee's spokesman, said Liddy's duties were unrelated to security or intelligence gathering. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me to talk, well, it's a Bradley Minute. It's an early Bradley Minute. So anyone who is a fan of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, knows that when you have on screen the best supporting actor, best supporting actor Oscar winner the legendary Jason Robards playing Ben Bradley on screen it's awesome this movie is as good as it gets in those minutes and therefore I need a guest who is as good as it gets to talk through those minutes this is one of my favorite people he's a Scotsman that is so pleasantly stranded in Australia right now and we are happy to have him stranded here he is a freelance journalist uh, you would read all of his stuff at the New Daily SBS he's been at the age a bunch and time out um, very recently in a stack of things, but he's kind of a man about town, a great critical and cultural mind, as well as particularly film criticism. And he's my favorite because he openly criticizes me on the podcast that it is recording when he doesn't like his assigned minute of any minute podcast, which I have to say I enjoy immensely. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to have one of my favorites. Here he is, his beautiful Glaswegian voice, Stephen Russell on the show. Stephen, thank you so much for being a part of the show. It's always a pleasure to be here. And I can I can neither confirm nor deny that there might be a minor complaint about this <laughs> in it as well. <laughs> I love like, all right, I'm going to gift wrap him a Bradley minute here, baby. Here we go. Here he is. There can't be any complaints. Uh, just, sorry, hold that. Hold that. <laughs> there may actually be a complaint. Mate, it's great to see you. Um, it's awesome to have you on the show again. Last time we talked heat, I wanted to talk to you because I knew you're a film mind. We we discovered then at that time you weren't such a Michael Mann head. You haven't since necessarily grown into one, but we certainly helped sort of cultivate your appreciation there. I don't know if you're a paranoia cinema person, let alone a docudrama person per se so i thought we might as a starting point like talk a little bit about you know where where does all the president's men where is that in your movie lexicon is that something that frequently pops up in the cycle is it something that was really influential because you particularly strike me as someone who uh, as part of your writing career anyway you've worked with a stack of editorial teams so you've worked all up and down like papers and online journalism and tv and indies and and all that sort of stuff so i feel like you'd have an affinity for it as many as much as any people 
Well, funnily enough, like actually, all joking aside, like I, I was really psyched when you tapped me to talk about this particular film. It is one of the great, one of my great joys. I absolutely adore this. I, right. I love. I, th- I think it's sort of the, the real. It sets the benchmark for people dorking out over the the the, the nitty gritty of journalism yes. and and how that's actually kind of thrilling like by rights if you said this film is 90 percent two dudes sitting at their desk <laughs> on a phone or just typing one, shit. Or, or one dude often <laughs> each of them, uh, but there's two guys but often it's just the one guy and it's them making five phone calls in a row and you're like well, yeah. how, how in hell could that possibly be compelling Whereas, like it just it doesn't make any sense, but it absolutely does. I mean, first of all, like, I mean, where, where do you even begin? I mean, the, the, this this film is obviously hung on a particularly, you know, nuclear mic drop moment in American history. First of all, <laughs> yeah. but what? Well, what I love about it is that it doesn't, you know, it, it's not in the, it's not in the Oval Office. It's not, you know, Nixon is there in, 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 well, real footage, archival footage, but it's not about him per se. It's not about the criminals. It's not about, you know, it's, it's literally the journalist as hero. It's kind of Raymond Chandler, you know, that kind of scruffy, disheveled, white knight detective out there, you know, fighting for justice. If you split Philip Marlowe into two atoms, <laughs> it's what would have yeah. Bernstein. Because Bernstein gets all the haggard shoe leather, messy, on smoking, and then Redford Redford as Marlowe is just, the, you know, the straight posture, the great extraction of information through conversation, um, and the observant yep. one there. Yeah, no, you're so right. It's, um, it's that... And, you just touched on one real quick thing that I want to not necessarily digress, but just dive down is, I don't know if it's maybe, I don't know if it's maybe like something that I'm sick of in sort of dramatizations of big historical events is being in the halls of power. And it's, it's not like it's Shakespeare's fault because sort of Shakespeare gets it, but maybe that's my favorite. That's why maybe Julius Caesar is my favorite Shakespeare play. Because it's not a really about Caesar. Like, he's in it, and he's doing stuff, and he says the speeches, um, and it's not really about Mark Antony. It's about Brutus. It's about someone yep. fending off all of the shit in the court that is not necessarily the pinnacle of the halls of power. Like, he's the conduit between those two things. But I think that's what one one aspect I think we haven't necessarily explored so much on the show yet. So it's exciting to talk to you about it today is, like, I don't I don't like this story if they do go into there because it's a different, it makes the whole, it changes the entire dynamic. Like I don't, it's so hard to balance it. Like if you're in a, a biopic fever dream, like Oliver Stone's Nixon, like you want to be there. You want to see him going fucking loopy in that white house, right? That's exactly, that's where yeah. you want to be. But for this movie, you can't have it like that. You, you can't you can't have these guys as the flies buzzing around this office because it, it totally you know it's a obviously it's a completely different movie but it's a completely different story it's like you know because the experience of the American people is and and the Western world and people following along as as readers at the time is this experience it's the outside in it's behind closed doors it's fortified it's it's impenetrable and these guys are scratching the surface and and very very occasionally when you think that this thing is this impregnable thing bricks and walls and turrets start falling down (laughs) and you're like oh shit maybe this isn't what we have been impressed has been impressed upon us that it is at the moment well, I think I think you've hit on two really interesting things that make this film absolutely sing. And actually, I think the Shakespearean angle is really pertinent. It's like in the Henriad, the the best stuff in the Henriad plays is not it's not the Crown. It's Falstaff and Hal pissing yeah. on 
and that 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 friendship and the betrayal when 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 Hal does become you know elevates to his destiny, and so uh, yeah, it's like the, the best stuff is not in is not the in the halls of power. It's, it's, I don't want to. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be in the throne yeah. room. The throne room bores the shit out. Maybe that's just like that is totally can be my inclination because you see shows like The Crown, where people mm. are. Enraptured, they want to be. They want yeah. to see behind the scenes. They want to be in Buckingham Palace. They want to see that. Whereas, like any time they go to, you know, um, Princess Anne or wherever it is, the Queen's sister. I'm like, yeah, get me there. That seems way funner. Like, let's go there. One hundred percent. Wherever that is. One hundred percent. The Queen's boring as bad shit. Get me to the sister. She looks like she's having a great time. Totally. 100%. You know, when you... <laughs> look, and, and, and the thing is as well, um, I, I... Oh, gosh, I've kind of completely lost my train of thought now. What was going to say? Oh, yeah, House of Cards, for instance, is a yes. great example. The, the first season is absolute genius and so much better than anything else that comes in that... Okay. In, in, in that and it's because for nine, well, for at least you know at least seventy percent of the time, it's not in it's not in the White House. It's the it's the jobbing journalist t- chipping away. Chip, chip, chip. At, yeah. You know, I and you know I didn't realize that's why I couldn't pursue House of Cards because I love I loved I loved that you know obviously a deeply pro- problematic series in reflection. It's been really enjoyable. Today, the day that we're recording this is um, in America, in Australia, it's laps today. It's Al Pacino's 80th birthday is actually the day we're recording this. So there's been some wonderful clips. Oh, um, happy birthday, Al. Happy birthday, Al. Bless you. I dedicated two years of my life uh, to your masterwork in my in my mind, and or one of them. Um, and uh, when I was, you know, you scroll through Twitter today, there's some great clips and people referencing stuff. And there's a great scene from Glen Gary Re- Glenn Ross where he just tears Kevin Spacey to smithereens, and it's a fucking like it's the greatest dressing down. There are many c words. There is like it's it is just glo- it is glorious, and it is both glorious in the context of the movie, but it's also glorious in the context of like the Hollywood pecking order because it's like don't you know how to do your job? Like you know he's like, and you just go that is an actor talking to someone who who is a pretender, um, and yep. thus yep. is the dynamism of the scene. But um, one of the things that I've been thinking about today, because to get back to Kevin Spacey in that series, that was one thing that I just couldn't, the second series never got me there. And then it never brought me back because I liked his character, Frank Underwood, messing with things farther afoot on the outside. And obviously the series' aspiration was to say, look, these fringe characters can actually ascend to power and much political fuckery can happen. And then they kind of got in there. And as with all things right now in the current political climate, it's like, uh, actually we couldn't write this stuff. Like we couldn't, we yeah. couldn't actually write how bat, bat shit it is. Like it's, it's impossible, but that's, yeah, that was never my get bag. I, I think that being on the outside, watching all those people try and penetrate in and all the games that they have to play, even to yep. get close, um, was, was always more fun for me. And look, that's why I really like particularly the, 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 you know this early part of all the president's men because yes. unlike something like I guess uh, you know a, a more recent comparison in spotlight mm-hmm. where it is very immediately apparent and centered what what the investigation is yes. what what the scope of it is and who they're going for whereas what I love about all the president's men is they don't have a clue <laughs> they, they they start this film with you know the break in and there's there's some there's some strange you know concurrences and who who's involved and who they're connected to, but they have no idea no. Of, of the size of this of, of of how far up it goes. They're just you know it's the bit I love as a as a journalist and and you know I've I've done my time as a new I guess most people see me as a cultural reporter. But when I started out, I, I did shifts with the Glasgow Herald newspaper. And my, one of my first gigs was with The Big Issue, where I literally was doing news, features, and arts. 
so I've I've kind of been at that cold face where you're you're pulling strings and you're trying to figure out what the story is, so good. and you're calling a bunch of people, and, and a lot of it's dead end. But it, you know, then you get and and just before the scene, you know, you get you get a phone call where you're like, "Hang on a minute, what?" Wait. And and then the story begins to become a bit clearer. It's and what's good is. The movie plays the greatest trick, I think, in that it's so good at getting you to this moment and this place and this headspace of people who have no clue what the picture is that you kind of get to go on the ride with them every time. Like, even though the monolithic Nixon is there, and as you said, I think I love that, is like the nuclear mic drop in American modern history of an impeachment or a threat to impeach and then obviously a, um, a resignation coming up. Um, we forget yeah. that. And and I think Spotlight in its in its funny way is that like right at the beginning of the movie, as you said, it's the picture of darkness is completely shown to you and, and, and you as the audience, you're in that fortuitous position of going, everything these people are saying is true. And it's like yeah. that's actually McCarthy's kind of unrelenting pursuit is to like watch the frustration of pulling away perception. Like, no, this yeah. is actually true. It's actually true. Like, yeah, yeah, use yeah. those instincts. Like, you've been trained that this is this couldn't happen. That morality would be the guiding principle here. But no, dark shit happens. And so, yeah, you're so right. That's a they, they're two great modes to play with. But I think equally, you've got these nuclear stories that are just taking the completely like inverse approaches to them. And so, I, I kind of like this because it's the same reason why you know, even the guest in the preceding minute to yourself, Jedediah Ayers is a great uh, crime noir writer in his own right and is a, is, is a bit of a, I, I call him like, a, he's almost like the biographer of cinematic and televisual noir um, as, as I, I know him. And that's why he, his entry point into this movie, I'm like, these guys are shoe leather detectives by another name. Like they yeah, are like- that, and they still are. Totally. And so um, that's, that's really fun. Oh, Glasgow Herald stories. We're going to dive into that, but- this is such a magnificent minute that I cannot wait another second before everyone who's listening hears it. Um, so Stephen and I are going to watch along. You guys are going to listen and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk all about it. And just remember, Jason Robards is absolutely monumentally outstanding and he makes three other actors one of them the biggest movie star maybe the world has ever seen in Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, and the incredible Jack Warden, also Oscar-nominated, all look like they've never acted before, all look like they're little schoolboys. So let's have a watch of this scene, and we'll come back and talk about it. This is a goddamn important story. It, it, get some harder information next time. Bradley just sticking for the Kennedys. You didn't have it, that's all. Bullshit, we had it cold. No, we didn't. Why don't you say something? You think fishing about it is going to get the story where we want it? Throw it in the canyon. Can I preempt your complaint already? Can I can I can I go out on the limb? <laughs> what do you think it's going to be? It's like what do you think? I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yes. I think it is Blake, you got me to deep throat answering the phone and not even saying a word. Is that what it is? <laughs> yes. You goddamn motherfucker. Last time I'm like you fucking gave me a clip. And he is literally the one minute before preamble to like a big gun battle. And then, then he literally gets me red and walking into the phone booth and making contact with people. I'm like, you, you are a sick man, Mr. Howard. You know what? <laughs> it's the only minute with Bradley and Deep Throat and you got it. 
You got it. It is technically Luke. the only minute that has those two guys <laughs> in the same scene. Uh, look, it's look, a- I'm, I'm mostly I'm mostly teasing. I absolutely love this minute, but yeah, I could not I could not I said, let this play. I, I, I didn't that. I didn't even think about it. To be honest, I was like I was like, what could it be? Like, oh, of course, I should have known. I've watched this damn t- damn scene too many times. Um, I get focused on the front end of this scene because of yep. a couple of things: anticipation, um, anticipation for an outcome. And then just two yep. completely different approaches. And I feel like as a younger man, I was all Bernstein. I was all like, that motherfucker doesn't know, right? And now yep. a little bit older, I'm such a more of a Redford Woodward guy here. I'm like, we didn't have it. Interesting. I'm like, we didn't have it. I'm not going to bitch about it. I got the feedback. Let's do this. Oh, a wonderful minute. Tell me. Yeah, absolutely. And. Well, as I was saying, you know, obviously I, I, my news chops in, in my career do come when I'm a cub, hungry cub, you know, absolutely convinced I'm going to be the next big thing, you know, um, <laughs> and then getting properly mauled by my actually brilliant editors who know a hell of a lot more than I do. So I, I, like, I love that. I, this scene rings so true to real life, you know. Any any journalist who's convinced that they've got something, they'll go out there with passion. I absolutely love this clip open for, you know, Hoffman, like, this is a goddamn important story. And he's, and he's you know, his boss is basically like, right, okay, well, prove it then, because you haven't so far <laughs> <laughs> we'll get better informa- get better information and it's like what, yeah. what i think the context of us is like we're watching this movie we're now 30 minutes into this thing and we finally feel like no. there's a breakthrough and even even jack warden is there as harry rosenfeld and he's like g- giving us everything and he's like yep this looks like it's good and he's like who's the source just the like no bs separate set of eyes who's the source like how high up i don't know titles it's like, well, there's a hole. Bang. See ya. Like, he just turns that article into Swiss cheese. He's just like, boom, boom, boom. Stick it inside yeah. someplace. Um, I, and, and, you know, this is so true. You got you got to do the legwork. You've got to, you've got to, even, you know, I feel like the, you know, off record is abu- used and abused badly nowadays. But, but even back then, you whole know. Magazines, people, whole magazines live and die by off record. How does new yeah, idea yeah. exist? How does does one of those magazines exist where they're like, a source says? It's just fiction. It's fiction. It's everything's I I know. Well, also, you know, nowadays the politicians are literally doing that. That's that's part of their spin. They're, They're, you know... I feel like actually nowadays I think half the problem with the, the the political gallery in Australia is because these guys are too much in bed with each other. They shouldn't be hanging out. They shouldn't be having little cosy wee chats every week. Like in my mind, the journalist is supposed to be the spear of justice, pronging their dirty little bums. And you know that this film is all about that. They're not. They're not buddies. They're, they're, they're mortal enemies, and that's, that's the way the relationship should be. And what's, fu- what's great about that, and this is, a, this is where you see the dig at, like, oh, he's a Kennedy shill, you know, like this and that, and he won't write about Nixon. It's one of those first insights you get into, into especially early Bradley or pre-Pentagon Papers Bradley, as we'd have to understand it, of like entanglement with politics and not just being exactly, as you said, a spear, um, because they can't be friends. Like you can't be friend. Like I, I know that it helps to have relationships, to have contacts, but it's like when these guys are sent to power, you can't be buddy. Like you can't be pally with them. You've got to be ferocious with them. And so I think it's like those voices of reason in in whether it's journalists or whether it's satirists. Like that was the one thing that you used to love about John Stewart is if like if he didn't agree with something that Obama did at the time, he would go at him hard, just like he did with Bush. Yeah. Just like he, you know, all of that, and it was equally fun to to go back and forth. But I think it's really absolutely. T- I mean, what? Oh, sorry, you go ahead. 
I was going to say one of one of the least favorite things, actually, on on both in America and here, is the the the, the idea where they all have a ball together. I'm like, that is absolutely insane. If I was a political journalist, there is no way I would ever agree to have a big fancy, all expenses paid party with the Paulies. I think it is corruption at its worst. <laughs> it's like you know what. If I drink this whiskey here and eat this delicious seafood or, you know, decadent steak, like if the, if those guys think for a split second tomorrow that I'm not going to reveal something really incredibly uh, volatile about their career, they've got another thing coming. Yeah, look, uh, it's it's a quandary, right? It's, it's the same, you know, and you and I in the culture lens don't necessarily have to do it, but it's like... Um, it's like that inclination of, you know, uh, and this is what I respect about sort of c- certain film reviewers and things like that. It's like, I can't review this guy's next movie because they're my friend. And, and like, there's, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. And, and it's like, I can't review this objectively. There's too much mess. I, I know that they mortgaged their house. I, you know, I know that they did that. And there's too much of that, you know, whatever, whatever you call it, nepotism or just, you know, osmosis of like, I know too much and it wouldn't be fair because if I genuinely did love it, the best I can say is I love it and go see it. And if I didn't like it, I'm not going to say a word or I'm going to say it was a valiant effort and, you know, I'm proud that they got to make it or something, you know, there'd be some, you know, platitude that would get you over the line, (laughs) but it's one of those things. And it's also like, um, what's lucky about, some of the stuff that I do is that there are plenty of stories I hear that if I was like a pure movie news person that you could just go to town, but that's not the role. Like the, the like I think someone in my position, I see like, Oh, it's good to have a relationship because you can have a conversation about a text with someone. But like, if you have yeah. to be one of those pure movie news people, then sometimes you're going to hear yeah. shit and print shit that people don't like, even if it is a fact. Well, look, I think you probably know me well enough, Blake, that I, I'm just not really biologically capable of not saying what I think. So even if you're my good friend, oh, you probably just don't, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get the brutal truth from me, whether whether you're my yeah. buddy or not, I reckon. No, look, I, 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 look, while you're being paid to write the review, there's nothing you can do. But, you know, like there's there's certain certain folk who might go pitching something to an article and go, oh, I'm not going to pitch that because that one. That wasn't my yeah. favorite thing. Uh, I don't want to do that. Yeah, it's really funny. And so this is this is what I love about this dialogue so much is Harry mm. is Harry's reserved. He doesn't say a word. It's actually Bernstein, and and you know he's he's sort of saying that's good. And he's like, nah, nah, throwing the side someplace, whatever. And he just walks off to go and investigate a little bit further. But this is this is where I think that Woodward actually rubs off on Bernstein a lot. Where he's like, yeah. what are we going to do? Like, you're going to sit here and bitch? We don't have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to get on the front page? Let's get some hard stuff and let's make it happen. I really love that shot as well. As far as establishing shots go, it's a beautiful, you know, Redford's just got that. Even even in a, even in his kind of, you know, corduroys, he's just got that kind of American slouch that's just, you know, it is that. It is the Marlowe character. Like, he's off on, you know, on where a, on a mission get, now. And where do we get some of that corduroy back, Stephen? I, we need it back. I mean, I, I know. maybe it's only because he's as beautiful as he is to pull off that much corduroy. Like, maybe that's what it is. But I'm just like, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, <laughs> I've never wanted to wear corduroy so much. I, th- I think, well, but I think that, I think it's another, I think it is the nuclear mic drop again, you know, <laughs> Redford, like, we hit peak corduroy with Redford, <laughs> and there is no man that is ever gonna ever gonna raise that bar like that. It's done. It's done. <laughs> every every costume designer in Hollywood instantly pens down after this movie. It's done, guys. Redford yeah. or corduroy. It's Sorry, over. Redford. <laughs> he should have got the Oscar for best corduroy wearing. You know, <laughs> just while they're adding more categories that we don't need. Yeah. You know, why not? Let's do it. Let's bring it. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. I mean, and look, the phone, the, the phone booth is just so. It's a that that's you know, that's where that's a pregnant image in, in cinema anyway. You know. Oh well, look. You know, I'm giving you all these beautiful perpendicular lines. I'm giving you the Washington streets in the '70s. I'm giving you this classic old beautiful phone booth and this coming in, and 
it feels like it's it feels the the way that the split diopter is working. It feels like the call's being listened to, even though it's well, maybe it is, but it feels like the call's being yeah. monitored. Especially if you yeah. watch something like the yeah. conversation or anything like that, you see that big what looks like institutional building behind that phone box. It looks like it's being monitored, and he starts making the call, the call to intro. You know, another nuclear mic drop character in this film. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I think I probably was guilty of some pretty long bows last time, Blake, and I'm probably <laughs> just going to end because you know, it got so soon, but the, the massive dark in me also feels that, you know, the phone booth is kind of impregnated with, the, the with you know, hero imagery as well. You know, everyone thinks of Superman going into the booth to spin around and, yes. You know, do thing or 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 you know, Doctor Who. Like for me, there's there's so much about uh, a hero being in a phone box anyway that kind of you know it signals they're they're big, powerful fights to come. And that is not a long bow to draw, but particularly because Redford was the guy they wanted to be Superman. They for the for, well, the, long, go, exactly. for the longest Ooh. time they wanted him to be Superman. In Donna's Superman, yep. and they and and it was Donna fighting tooth and nail to go. No, you can't have Redford because he's going to overpower the whole movie. Like we need someone unknown yep. to get this to make this character work. Um, it already had Brando, obviously, and people like Hatch- <laughs> Hackman, atta- ha- Hackman attached. So you're just like, no, I don't need another. You know, Brando is such a subtle. You know, I mean, that's he's. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely subtle. Such an underscored, you know, barely known actor. I mean, <laughs> just a, just a, you know, a young punk trying just, to make his way in the movie world. <laughs> they're paying him like a million bucks a minute to be in this movie, basically. <laughs> like that's, I know he made Steven spit up his wine, but they are like, it's just impossible. But no, you're so right. There is, there is something, and. This is where, like, the sort of classical, it's kind of a moment in time and a moment in art where, like, for the longest time, as you said, like, you've got Doctor Who, you know, the TARDIS and this entryway, you've got Superman since the 1930s using phone booths to get changed and then therefore every superhero story since and and you've got these entryways and there's sort of these heroic iconography that comes there. But, like... Right now in American cinema and therefore that what permeates through Western cinema is phone booths are anonymity. They become like it like it, it takes that thing of like anonymity and, you know, superheroes doing their thing, either traveling places in secret or getting changed and not revealing their secret identity. But it takes that anonymity to like a whole nother height and level of like, I do not want you to hear what I'm saying. So I'm going to walk out of the place that I have a phone because it's going to be bugged. And I'm going to go from that. So it's this, I, I, I want to, I want to add your bow and like add another string on it and say like, but this is that it's so pregnant with stuff that it's like actually a turning point moment where it says now, every time I see a phone booth, I think someone's up to something no good. Like that's, that's where Absolutely. I, that's where I, now I'm like, they're up to something. If you're going to public pay phone, yeah, 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 yeah. even all the way up into contemporary times into like the wire, if you go all the way to the wire, which is 2002, like people are still dialing payphones in in the middle of Baltimore, you know, uh, projects to get drug deals and and say coded messages. It's like, like this is a yeah. place where you're you're making calls because you really don't want to be found out, and you want to use different ones at different times. And look, if you want to, if we want to jump back as well to our, our Shakespeare chat, you know, it is there is even that shot, you know, it's there's the there's the, the the castle, you know, the fort that must be bro- breached, and 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 the phone tower is essentially your, you know, it's the siege tower. This is the the little guys trying to break down those walls, you know. That's, yes, that's what it is. Yeah, one little guy making a phone call, and he's swiftly hung up on. <laughs> it's like it's like I can't talk about this. Well, I know it, 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 it makes it it makes it feel really it makes it feel really bad. Um, like, oh, sorry, makes the chances feel really bad right at that moment. Yeah, it's a, like, I also think that it's so, this is how, this is one of those things that you, 
it's impossible to predict, you know, and I think even the, the alchemy of this movie could not have predicted how well the immediate contemporary choices that they were making to stay focused on these granular things in these guys' story that play 40-odd years later. Like, they play, like, really yep. calculated and deliberate narrative and artistic choices. But from a, like, pound for pound, this is what we do, like, functional perspective, they're also serving to go, hey, this movie is being made for people who've had nothing but Watergate in their faces for, like, three years. Like, nothing. Like, especially if you lived in Washington, it's been on the front page of your major metro, like, pretty much every year since 72 and now it's 76. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean like the whole, I mean, Bradford was obsessed with it. He made this entire thing. Like he kind of made the book happen as well. I think. Yes. I think, yes. I think didn't, you're not, you're he, didn't not, he talk them into writing the book? Yeah. Well, he t- <laughs> I think they were in the midst of writing it or in the midst of talking about it. Like, Hey, you know, people are saying we should do a book and he's like, no, you, a, you definitely need to do a book and B, it can't yep. just be your stories. It has to be about your investigation. It has to be about you guys and, yeah. what, and what you did. And sort of like he planted the seed. It's an unbelievable. It's the 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 entanglement is almost like it's almost like someone explaining quantum physics. Like it just starts to get yep. so messy and weird that your brain starts to go, wait, hold on. So Redford, like, well, what, I, what, yeah. <laughs> so and like, what I love about this is, you know. It's the- so he, he is this huge driving force in this film and, and indeed with the journalist, like he's really embedded in this story. And what I kind of really love about him, because he's also at this point in his career when he's assuming control, where he's, you know, yes. stepping out from just being behind, uh, sorry, in front of the camera and he's becoming, uh, you know, he's making projects happen that he wants to be in. But what I kind of love about him, and I think it always says a lot about a brilliant actor, is that he doesn't then cast himself as the showboat. Yes. He plays the kind of the straight man to Hoffman being the big wild thing. And again, that's such a cinematic you know, it's such a wonderful trope of the, you know, the straight guy and, and the, the fiery, tempestuous guy and how together they, they're actually this brilliant team, even though they kind of don't really like each other, but then they become, you know, BFFs. And <laughs> I, I just, like, I love the relationship in this film. I love, I love Redford stepping back and being the, the more straight guy. You know, it's, it's just great. And it's also, it's a very... um it's a very thankless straight guy too. Cause like, although he's great and they're great and they're obviously the heroes of this story, when you put it in direct contrast with something like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, like he's playing the, the cool guy. Like Butch is the ultimately the smart wise ass, but he's playing Mr. Cool. Like couldn't be cooler. Um, maybe one of the coolest cowboys we've ever seen on screen. And that's like a really, that like that Mount Rushmore or that top 10, of coolest cowboys ever on a screen is fucking outlandish. Like it's a very hard fought category to get into. So, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of stuff, but, but yeah, like it's the more thankless of the two roles. Cause Carl's like the heavy smoking, lurking firecracker. And he's like, and, and, and the guy who's technically a better writer and the guys had more experience and all those things. And he's the green guy. And yet he's, he's still such a force like he's uh, and I think and I think we we just sort of hit the nail on the head in this scene of what why they work it's that Carl is cynical about the world and cynical about the journalism industry and has kind of got these opinions whereas you know the fact that he's green and he's like we just need to get better has like this refreshing yep. and you know a breezy title like hey you just got to forget this bullshit and this is a new story and we've just got to get it. Like we've just got to get this story, no matter what we've got to do. And and uh, yeah, it's just it's 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 also impossible. Like yeah, he he literally basically helped get the book written, cast himself, cherry picked the greatest roster of people that have ever <laughs> almost ever assembled to make a movie together, made it, it worked, and it still plays forty years later. Like yeah, one hundred. <laughs> like it's a miracle. It's a fucking. Although miracle. I do I do love you know. Even in this era now where, you know, essentially the entire Nixon shebang is completely dwarfed by the insanity of what we're going through right now. And yet this story, 
you know, it's still a jaw dropper. Everything about it is, it's a thriller. It's a thriller told in a newsroom and I love it. It's funny that you said that. It's like the whole time I've been doing this project, I never thought that I would get here. Maybe it's my isolation brain, but it's like Nixon was all right. Like he's fine. <laughs> it's just like, look, I don't, I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd say all right or fine, but but we currently have an insane, putrid, dribbling demagogue who thinks we should inject bleach. So, now, now, a fellow, a fellow Brit, you know, in, in, when, we're in, when we're talking about not a Scotsman, but like. UK uh, com- uh, compatriot of yours, Ricky Gervais, yep. who's a, an increasingly controversial yeah. figure, back in 2016 yeah. wrote a tweet that was like, I know why Donald Trump can win an election because bleach bottles say do not drink as a warning on them. And he tweeted that statement back in 2016. And someone found it today, Stephen, on Twitter and said, this tweet might have to go to the Hall of Fame. Like it, it might have, it might be the Hall of Fame tweet of like there are, yeah, people, yeah, 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 there yeah. are people around America right now, politicians, you know, celebrities, you know, influential people that are going. Please don't drink bleach. <laughs> I mean, where have we come to? And I- Please don't inject yourself with bleach. And in Australia, you and I go, we we look across the pond to our friends and compatriots, especially in culture. Like a lot of our friends are just like, this is absolute madness. And I can't imagine the level of infuriation and shame that they're feeling like, you know, and and, and exhaustion, just sheer exhaustion at the the stupidity of the whole thing. And then us in Oz and it's like, you know what? There are there's some real conservative weird fuckery that happens in Australian politics, but right now in the midst of this crisis, I don't have many complaints. Yep. I have nah. basically zero complaints. They've tried to do stuff. Some of our public, uh, some of our public have done dumb things. Some things have been poorly articulated, but there is nothing more powerful to me right now. You know, we're in the midst of a, we're talking political movie, so I feel like it's okay to say it. Like, there's nothing more powerful to me than the leader of the country going, "Hey, there's my chief medical officer. I'll let him answer that question. He knows better." There's just like I'm like, that's Look, the right that's the right I, thing to do. That's the right thing to say. I I do I do think there is though a direct line from Nixon to where we're at. Like he yeah. he he poisoned the well of Camelot. You know, from that <laughs> moment on, even even though you know plenty of you know presidents beforehand had had dodgy stuff going on. You know, JFK was no angel. Um, but from that moment on, America no longer saw the, you know, the, the head of government as, as quite as godly. It, the fall opened the path to, I guess, where we're at now, where people just don't trust politicians at all. Like he's got a lot of responsibility for that. But I do want to quickly jump in as well and say that when it's funny you mentioned Gervais there, weirdly, because. Uh, in, in a totally different way, this watching this scene again did kind of remind me of The Office. Like in, in a sense, there is that that you know that idea that it's that it's not. It doesn't feel like a stage drama. It feels like some dude just literally walked into a newspaper office, yeah, and is, is just seeing what's going on. You know, and the warts and all kind of look at that. It makes me actually think of The Office a little bit. Yeah, because we haven't talked about that, but I think I love that is because in the office, the office always feels effortless because they just made it an office. They just like, this is an office is exactly coming out of our, we're ripping it out of our brain. This former place we used to work, the entire layout, it needs to look exactly like this. And if it doesn't look like this, it doesn't work. And these guys were so meticulous about this. And this is where I praise the background acts. You know, I I think if there's a drinking game for all the President's Minutes podcasts, it's every time that Blake, the host of the show, praises the background actors. Because... And and so yeah. so guys, take a swig because again, it's just everything. It's the alchemy of them. It's the <laughs> Stephen has I've run out. Um, so but, but 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 even but even Bradley himself just in the preceding minute and in this minute, the way he walks from his office to that chair, 
and how well he knows that, that walk, I love that. I also then love feet on the desk, comfort level, like love that. Every desk has got mountains of paper on it, like so many drafts of different copy, uh, your own copy, like three days worth of papers, both probably Washington Post and New York Times. You've got the compendiums of American politics on there. You know, just everything about it. And uh, you're so true. It's like it makes it effortless. Yeah. It's it's that then when it's it feels lived in, it feels like it does not feel like a stage anymore. That's where you can. No, it. and actually, I don't know. Do you know where? Do you know? I mean, I I don't know the answer to this. Do you know where they filmed it? Was it filmed in the offices, or is this a stage, a sound stage? Exactly. So, um, it is exactly the layout of the seventies office of the Washington Post. It is not filmed there, and I think largely right. it's because um, they were going to be too disruptive. So they built the yeah. whole thing in Burbank, uh, in in, yep. in Los Angeles to film it. They bought the same chair suppliers, the same company for the tables. Okay. Like they literally supplied it as if it was there, and even shipped in a waste paper from the waste paper baskets in the office in the Washington Post in Washington themselves to fill the waste paper baskets in this office. And so, really? much, so much so that Woodward and Bernstein, who were on set frequently, and Bradley, um, who came down, and, and the whole editorial team, really, to just see their uh, their Hollywood yeah. counterparts, were very yeah. were very freaked out. We're like, holy, like, holy shit! This is the Washington Post. Like, it, you, you basically you've cloned my newsroom, and it's it's here. Yeah, but it's. You know, it's it's well, just effortless. the very fact that I'm asking you that, you know, yeah. that that kind of shows. But the very fact that I I I, I could quite just, happily be convinced that that was the waffle. You know, it's it's pretty amazing to look at. Yeah, it's uh, I I think it's and and you know, unlike when we talked about Heat, which has like a hundred shooting locations in a movie that's 166 minutes long, um, you know, or a hundred plus rather, um, it's for a movie that revolves around it, it the whole thing hinges on it. You know, it's one of those yeah. things that also I think Zodiac has in common with it. You know, the the San Francisco Chronicle newsroom is so important to that movie. And so they make that 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 space so important. Similarly, Robert Graysmith's house in that movie is like so important that his house, everything about his apartment is 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 identical to that. And it's one thing that I don't love as much about the post. Um, is I think that Kay Graham's house is really important in that movie and almost Ben Bradley, so Tom Hanks's house, so Meryl Streep's house in the film, the, these these mm. opulent personal spaces are really important. When you get to the po- Washington Post newsroom, it almost feels like, oh, they just didn't do it. to <laughs> Whether they did or didn't, it's like it just doesn't feel like the you're the president's newsroom because in my brain, that is the Washington Post newsroom. Any other newsroom that's trying just, just doesn't yeah. work. I mean, look, it's it's a fine film, but it, it doesn't it doesn't have the chops that we're looking at here. It's not it doesn't feel lived in. Those people don't feel like real journalists. They don't. And it doesn't ring true for me. The post, I have to say. I mean, it's it's perfectly enjoyable for what it is, but it's not on the cal- caliber we're looking at here. See, for sure. see that honesty. Folks, this is why he's never going to be invited to that ball. Sorry, Meryl. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. I know, Tom, we almost killed you. I'm sorry, oh but God. whatevs. <laughs> well, you know what? They're, they're finding the cure with Tom Hanks's blood, apparently, so that's another piece of news that's breaking right now. <laughs> so, well, there we go. We're back to Superman, we're aren't ba- we? We're back, we're back Amer- to Sp- America's dad is going <laughs> to save us all. <laughs> Finally, I have to ask, are you a pacular guy? Are you a... Uh, uh, are you a parallax view or are you a clute guy or a pelican brief guy I, 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 or or particularly even, you know, I, I heard the other day a great, uh, there was a really great discussion going online about noir films and they were talking about great noir direct- directors and I, I deferred my, I deferred my expertise at times to you as, as we collectively do to great people who are just experts in the field. And there's a couple of different noir experts and, and I, I only know this person as, at the nitrate diva um and they were talking about uh, who's a noir expert and was just talking about so in noir films it's almost as 
telling when you select a cinematographer as it is a director, especially in those old classic noir films. It's like if you if that if it's got a great cinematographer, it's almost equally an indicator of it being worth your time as a director. Whereas we, you know, if you're a bit of a vulgar or tourist uh, in the later years, you're like, oh no, it's it's a director or nothing. So I just wonder if if yeah. if you're a Will's guy, a Willis guy rather, or if you're a a, a Pacula guy in any of your other casual viewing. Well, no, it's really that's a really interesting question. I mean, I I do love a lot of those films, like Pelican Beef. I think there is that, and that's what I say. There is that that kind of thriller aspect to it. That that it just and it does, I think it does permeate the entire DNA of the film. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Stephen Russell, this has been a thrill. Thank you for sharing a wine and your time with me to discuss this. Thank you for getting to the precipice of D-Throat. The next episode, people are going to be able to hear yeah. us discuss the first words spoken um, from Hal Holbrook's Deep Throat on the phone to Robert Redford. And yeah. if there is not a mention of X-Files, I'll be really disappointed. But anyway, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Look, there definitely is in upcoming minutes what I can say for those okay. few episodes that have been. But um, I've got a treat. Uh, I've got a treat. I wanted to talk to a voice expert, uh, a, a voice acting expert to talk to Hal Holbrook. So next episode, and I don't really do this a lot, but next episode, Tasia Valencia, who um, has been a voice actor in you know Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and uh, a whole bunch of other things uh, like, you know, the Batman Arkham games and many, 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 like just a litany of things um, is on the show to talk about how, uh, how you can be directed, how, how this performance is constructed, how the, how all the different phone calls are happening and, and really to get an insight into that. So that'll be a fun one, but definitely, you know, our generation's deep throat, who was always a cigarette smoking man and he does get a mention. So <laughs> don't, don't you worry and about he, that. And he, you know, he's, he's even shot, even, even the <laughs> lighting, you're like, Oh my God, I, I can see exactly Chris where you did that. <laughs> Carter, if you're listening, we'd love you to be a guest on all the president's minutes podcast. We know you clearly, jive with this movie uh so yeah if you are listening we'd love to have you stephen russell mate always a pleasure to talk to you and always a pleasure to see you i hope you're keeping well and uh and and maybe just maybe i'll let you uh send me a ransom note with your demands for another minute to talk about later on and i will let you choose it this time because <laughs> god forbid i leave you on the precipice of something important oh darling it's, it's not as much fun unless unless you do it and then i just Bet you on you for it. <laughs> it's been a genuine pleasure, Mister. Always, thank you. You're the best. Thanks. The genuine pleasure is mine, Mister. Stephen Russell. Stephen A. Russell, guys. If you want to find him, go to Twitter. S. A. Russell. R. U. Double S. E. Double L. Words. Um, is the best place to find him. He's a man about town. He writes for a stack of places. He writes for, as we, we already said, he's a film fanatic and a, and and he's a man about town, but he writes for the ABC, SBS, Time Out, a whole bunch of places. So Twitter is literally the best place to start. This has been another One Heat Minute production. Thank you so much for listening along. We have an amazing array of shows. One Heat Minute, obviously, the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, Increment Vice, Josie and the Podcats, all the President's Minutes which you're listening to today, and our daily podcast, Con 10 Gen, which is a tight 10, talking to a whole stack of folks in isolation, in quarantine, sort of accounting for in this community everything that's going down. Listen along to that daily. We're going to have great shows coming up for you, some unannounced stuff which we are going to announce to tease for the future. But if you want to support us, we do have a Patreon, and you can find links to that on oneheatminute.com. If you want to go to our site, oneheatminute.com or incrementvice.com, you can find out more about the shows. And if you want to go to graffitiwithpunctuation.com, you can read about Contingent and our upcoming six-part limited series, Josie and the Podcasts. Until next time, thank you so much. Subscribe, rate, review, share.